Welcome, everybody. Just a note before we get into the show, Thirsty is a podcast designed to make us think bigger and bring people's stories into the light. It should not be considered medical or psychological advice. Please reach out to your personal medical professional for any questions you may have about today's subject matter. Now, with that being said, let's start today's episode. Welcome back to Thirsty the Podcast. I'm Laura Koo. And I'm Heather McGee. Today, we're talking about dating and addiction with Dr. Shamin Ladani. Welcome, everybody. As a reminder, please share Thirsty the Podcast with your community, anybody who you feel would be interested in the content we're sharing. And remember to rate, review, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thank you to those of you who have been joining us this season. And for those of you who are new here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. This season, we have focused on all the ways we can open our minds to new things, challenge our programming, and get curious about the world around us. We're calling it Fresh Eyes, and we are so happy to have all of you here with us today. And today, we are so excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Shamin Ladani. Dr. Shamin holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and works as a pain psychologist focused on pain management in a hospital setting. In addition, Dr. Shamin runs a consulting practice focused on psychological evaluations and designs training and workshops with a focus currently on culturally sensitive and trauma-informed healthcare. Dr. Shamin, I feel like that's kind of the Cliff Notes uh, version of your impressive resume. And to top it all off, we know each other from our gym, um, where I know you are just as impressive um, in the gym as you are in the office, because I've seen how much you can lift. Um, So to start us off, Dr. Shamin, is there anything you would like to add to introduce yourself today? Um, Just a little bit about like expertise in the topic, because I have been working in pain management. I work with a number of different addictions. So, you know, absolutely, when people have pain, they're going to have addictions to opioids, alcohol, cannabis. We, We see a whole spectrum of that. And I've been intricately involved, not only in helping my patients with those issues, but also on um, different councils and committees to help with advocacy, reducing stigma, as well as sort of, you know, increasing access to mental health care so that we can get people better care. Great. That work is so important, as we know, um, and something that impacts so many people's lives in so many different ways. Um, And we know that there are so many facets of addiction, and we want to make sure that this conversation today is helpful for those who are, you know, when we think about it through a dating lens, that this is helpful for um, anyone in a relationship with someone who has a history of or is struggling with addiction, as well as for any of our listeners who may be coping coping with their own addictions. Yeah, I mean, looking at this through the lens of dating and relationships, um, you know, like I know for me, like this is a situation I found myself in at times and the dating world at large is full of daters. They're on high alert for finding red flags. I would even say it's a little bit of obsession at times. It's funny. And their partners are always looking for like, what's the red flag I have to watch out for? And I think from that perspective, dating someone with an active addiction or even a significant past addiction can be, some people might see that as a red flag. And so for anyone who finds himself in that situation, Dr. Shamin, how would you recommend they make the personal decision about whether to move forward with a relationship or how to think about it? Most definitely. The first thing I want to say is 
there's a ton of stigma around addictions. And there's a ton of misinformation out there about people that are struggling with addiction. So if you are considering dating someone that has an addiction, there's a couple of things you just want to think about. Number one is how long have they been in recovery? You know, sort of the rule of thumb in the mental health world is that someone should be in recovery without having had a relapse for about a year. And they should be active in their treatment. And active in treatment can mean a number of different things. It could be that they're attending a 12-step program. It could be that they're in individual counseling. It could be group therapies. It could even be medication-assisted therapies. Uh, in some of the conditions, people have to take medications to stay sober. Um, and actually, you know, to that point, some people that are in sobriety um, very often can be even healthier than the average person because they are actively working on their issues, learning coping tools. And so in some ways, it could be very positive. Now, if you find yourself in a situation that doesn't meet those criteria, then that's the point where you have to sort of ask yourself a couple questions and be very sensitive and non-judgmental with the person that you're dating. You know, how soon did they tell you about their addiction? Because we certainly want to start relationships with honesty. and Typically, something like that for someone who is trying to stay sober should start very early in the beginning. That person should have shared that information. Um, are they actively working on their sobriety? When someone tells you that they have just went cold turkey and they don't believe that they'll ever go back again and they're not doing anything to make sure that they don't, that could be potentially dangerous in that sense, too. Um, so you want to you want to look at that and you want to see how long they've been doing it. But if they are actively addressing it, it's been more than a year, and that may be a very good indication that someone could be a potentially good part despite that. But do remember that people with active addictions, the relapse rate is huge, like over 40%. So it could happen any time in their life. So that's a potential. And we can certainly talk a little bit about, you know, what we can do with that if we're staying in a relationship with someone as an addiction. Yeah. I mean, you're making me think about, you know, some of the people I know in my life that are in long-term relationships, you know, either as the person that has struggled with an addiction or on the other side of it, and there have been relapses. Like, how do you, let's say it's someone you fall totally in love with them. This is your person. This is something that will be a part of their relationship for the long-term. How do they, how do you think about that? How do you deal with relapses, bumps in the road that might happen due to addiction being something that is managed throughout their life? It's a disease state. So like any other disease, we have to remember that there is a potential for these sort of ebbs and flows with the disease. Now, it's not an absolute. I certainly work with many a patient who's had 30, 40, you know, 20 years of sobriety. So the potential for that is good. And those are the people that are really actively on top of their addictions. Now, if this is your person, you're in love with this person, you should have had many conversations about what happens when we do have a relapse. What kinds of resources do we need to put in place for you? What kinds of things do we need to do when this happens? And then the most important thing is you have to remember that you're not responsible for that person's behavior. They are 100% responsible for their behavior. And not at any point should you feel that you did something or that it was your fault, or that you didn't do enough, which led to their addiction or led to their relapse. So it's really important to have good boundaries yourself and to sometimes even be in your own mental health treatment um, to make sure that you avoid sort of 
enabling types of behaviors. Now, enabling is a word we hear a lot in conjunction with addiction. And for those who aren't familiar, enabling, and Dr. Shameen, please uh, correct me if I say any of this incorrectly. We understand enabling to be defined as someone whose behavior allows a loved one to continue self-destructive patterns of behavior. And then when we're dating someone, our intention is to be a supportive partner. How easy is it for support to then morph into more enabling, which is not helpful? That depends on a number of different things. And it may depend on your own history yourself. I guess I would ask yourself to think, am I a person who likes to step in and care for people? Am I a person that is like the helping person? There are people in this world that just are the helpers or the caregivers. Now, that person is particularly vulnerable to getting into enabling behaviors if they haven't addressed truly their caregiving nature. So when we say how easy, it, it really depends on the mental health of that person who's the partner in that relationship. Um, it can be at first when, if you've never dealt with addiction, you may at first feel like, I wanna be a good partner. I wanna be supportive. Um, you know, this is a disease, it's an illness, I get it. And so, you know, let me let help them go here. Let me take them this way. Let me, you know, I'll give them a little extra money. They were running a little bit low. But those things will help to perpetuate and continue the behavior. And what people will start to notice over time is that no matter what they do, the person continues to use. And so we have to sort of make sure that we're noticing those changes in that person. Um, but I don't want to sort of say it's like easy. If you have really healthy boundaries in your relationship, which is such an important conversation, such an important word is boundaries in any relationship. Um, you can really still have a good relationship when someone does have a relapse, which may mean you have to step away from the relationship while they get better. Now, in my early, early days of dating after divorce, like first out on the apps, just starting to, I think the first person I ever matched with on Bumble and went on dates with, so this is a million years ago. Um, he, as I, I found out um, after a couple of dates that he was fresh out of rehab um, for alcoholism. So something that I had never been a part of my life. I'd never, this was brand new stuff for me and dating was brand new for me. And it was a, a casual relationship. Um, uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I was in my hot mess, dark days. So it was, it could only be a casual relationship at that <laughs> point in my life. Um, but once he shared this with me and I appreciated that he sh shared it with me very early on, um, because, um, you know, I think it would have been a really confusing situation had I not known what was going on with him and where he was at in his life. If it had turned into a more serious relationship, I can see myself just getting, I would have gotten so invested. I'm such a fixer. I think a lot of women tend to be fixers like, oh, we just do this and that. Like that is the mode that I often go into. And really now as I'm more mature in relationships, I'm better at dialing that down. But at that time I would have been just off the rails trying to like fix this situation not knowing what I had gotten into. Um, what advice do you have for people who find those themselves in those situations? And also if they get so invested, they don't know whether they should stay or go or, or how to handle it. Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. And, you know, such an important term to think about yourself as a fixer, because we as women are really very much fixers. Like if we think about like evolution and like the history of the woman post-World War II era, we became the moms and we were working and we were managing the household. So we are just sort of wired to do this. So I think it's a real normal thing. I mean, the first thing 
said that I want to identify as fresh out of rehab. Anybody that's in addiction knows you should not be dating fresh out of rehab. That is a huge red flag. As amazing as it is that they were able to share that with you, and, and that's a hard thing to have to do, it's still not a good idea to date somebody that is that soon out of rehab. If they don't have that one year, like I say, use that as your benchmark. Just say, you know, it's great. And I, I might be interested in you later on, but you know, you've just gotten out of rehab. And what I know is I, I think you need to work on that in that sense. Now, if you find yourself in that sort of stuckness in that fix it, you first need to kind of look at how is it affecting your life? You have to really look at that. If you don't have good boundaries, if you find yourself completely invested in that other person and you are losing yourself in the relationship, that is not a healthy relationship. And so when you recognize that that's all you're doing, what we tend to tell ourselves is I'm helping. I'm such a good person. You know, I'm so loving. I'm so supportive. Like, can't they see how good I am thinking that that's going to be enough for that person to get sober? And it never will be. I can promise you it will never be because they are not in a relationship with you anymore. They are in a relationship with the substance is whether it's the bottle, whether it's the pill, whether it's a needle, they are no longer in a relationship with you anymore. And so you have to recognize that it may be time to step away and you have a conversation with that person, a very non-judgmental and supportive conversation about how you're concerned about them, how you know this is a problem with them. But at this point, you have to step away so that they can get their help and that you're willing to be there for them as long as they're getting help. Um, but you cannot sit by and watch them do that. Yeah, I think it's so important that what you hit on that you will never be enough because that is their journey. And again, you can be that supportive person on the side, but you are not going to be the reason that they make other choices and get the help that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that situation for me, again, it was very eye opening and it was a good learning opportunity for me. And I do appreciate that, you know, he shared where he was at immediately. I did ask him the question of like, are you supposed to be dating right now? And he's like, oh, my sponsor says it's fine, which clearly was likely lies or you need a new sponsor, one of the two, <laughs> which is like, because mm -hmm. I knew it probably wasn't right. <laughs> That's so important. Like what you just said, Laura, is like something didn't feel right to you too. Like, and I think this is something we also don't do well as women. It's like, we have these feelings, this intuition, like something just doesn't feel right. That whole gut feeling thing, when I was like starting out as a psychologist, I remember supervising whatever it is that you feel in the room is right. Whatever you it is that you feel in that room between you and that person is right. And you have to recognize that. And I think it's when we start to dismiss those feelings. And so we really need to kind of check back in and, and say, okay, something isn't right about this. And I need to step away. Yeah. And that kind of hits on you know, something I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, again, I didn't have to play any guessing games in this situation because he was very upfront from the beginning about what his situation was, which absolutely helped me make informed decisions. But for those who are not as fortunate and they may be dating someone who is very privately struggling with addiction, what are some signs that, you know, for somebody to look for to kind of maybe clue into what might be happening? Definitely. And I'm going to say this with the disclaimer that sometimes mental illness is a factor too. So sometimes we don't know. Um, but even if it is mental illness, like it's still going to be the same advice and the same types of symptoms. So with addiction, sometimes what we see is increased isolation. Your partner is not talking to you anymore, talking to you less, seems to be sort of sneaking away or not spending time with you. 
Uh, they no longer want to go and do things like they used to do. You can kind of see a personality change. There seems to be sort of more isolative behaviors, letting go of responsibilities. Agitation is a big one. Typically, when people start to use substances, they will start to snap, they'll get irritable. Um, but you will sometimes see kind of increases in different types of behavior, like a little bit more like involved. And then next thing they're pulling back again, they may start to slip in terms of their hygiene. They may start to slip in terms of their work responsibilities. They're not showing up as much. Financial. Sometimes we notice that it seems like they can't pay for things when we go out on days where they were able to pay for things before, or, you know, there's, there's a ask for, can I just borrow $5 or $10? And it was just a very uncomfortable type of conversation in that sense. So those may be some of the things that you might want to look for. So if someone's starting to notice maybe some of these behaviors, and again, like you said, their gut's telling them something's a little bit off, what are some tools that they can use to help them navigate maybe a tough conversation? I think a couple things. I think that when we have to have difficult conversations, we have to find the right time to have that conversation, which is not always um, right when we you notice know, the behavior, we tend to be very reactive. We like see something and then we're like, what's going on with you? And that will never go well. Um, we, we really need to sort of notice, observe, and realize that maybe something's going on, but we also have to know our partner well and know when a good time would be. Um, typically with someone, at least that you've been in a relationship for a while, you need to find sort of a neutral zone, like have a conversation with them. And I wouldn't even prepare them for that. I was going to wait until there's a time where there's, you know, if there's children, there's no children around. We want to make sure that, you know, you're in a quiet place, a kind of neutral zone. You don't really want to be out in public typically for these conversations. And you want to sort of approach that person like, hey, you know, after dinner, it could be like, you know, sit outside and talk a little bit. Being outside is like got amazing neurological benefits just to be sitting outside, how it opens your mind, being out in the air, like can be a really nice place to do it. But you can also do it within your home, depending on where you're at. And then you want to start. I always tell people, start with, you know, a sentence about how you feel about that person. What's important about that relationship and that connection to them. But I have been noticing some things and I'm worried or I'm concerned about what's happening with you. And I wanted to sit you down so that we could talk about it because I want to be here for you. I want to know what it is and I want to know more about what's happening with you because it's really unusual for you to snap at me. And I've noticed you've been doing that more. You know, you really haven't wanted to go and do things lately. And I'm concerned because you really like to go out to dinner and you haven't wanted to go out to dinner for a long time. So we really want to start very supportive, very neutral, not in an accusation um, because there you could get defensiveness back. And that's the best route to kind of start. And then of course, whatever they might share, we're not sure how that might go. You may need to tell them like, hey, I, I, I'm glad you're sharing this with me, or they may not share it with you. And that becomes more concerning. But if they do, what can we do together to help you with this? How can I support you? And what can I, what can we do together to help you with this? Now, of course, we want to be careful about the enabling piece and boundaries, but there may be things you can do together. Can you drive me to the clinic? You know, can you take me to rehab? You know, there could be a number of things that you could do that allows you to be supportive. That's great. That's a really helpful distinction between what is a supportive action and what's an enabling action. Like which, which thing are you supporting with your, with your actions and words? Now, one thing we've established is that just because you battle addiction, it does not mean you are undateable. 
you know, and to your point, Dr. Shamini, you were talking about how there is a lot of stigma around addiction, but that doesn't mean that, you know, many, many, many people struggle with addiction and find love every day and live a really great life as well. But for any of our listeners who have had or are on their own journey with addiction, and maybe they're out there on the dating scene, what advice do you have for some of our listeners that they're the person struggling with the addiction when it comes to sharing their story or how to think about dating? Absolutely. I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's people that have been sober or have been sort of in recovery for at least a year usually are doing the really good work to be healthy. They're doing therapy. They have coping tools. And when you start to date, we have to remember that that's an emotional process too, right? At the beginning, you know, there can be, you know, a lot of discomfort, anxiety, stuff like that. And we know that discomfort, anxiety, feeling insecure can trigger an addiction. So we need to be in check with that. We definitely have should be in therapy when we're starting a relationship. And especially when we ourselves have an addiction. Now, I definitely think that it's important to share that information as soon as possible. Um, you know, if you're on that first date, you know, there's not going to be a second one. Well, maybe it's okay to just not even <laughs> share that. But if you know, you are planning to sharing it as early as possible is important. Uh, being in therapy and sharing with your partner what you're doing to maintain your sobriety and how much it's helped you. I think it can be really useful for you not only to share like your journey to some degree, but also how much the help has changed your life and how committed you are to continuing that process. Because, you know, if you end up where someone is not open to dating you, you have to see that as actually a win for yourself, because you really don't want to be with someone who doesn't understand addiction, or get it, or going to be supportive of you, you probably just dodged a bullet by not being in that relationship in the first place. Yeah, I feel like early dating too is really hard to navigate as far as a, a common or first date is going out for a drink, the bar scene's pretty heavy um, in, in in dating, tends to be. And also, obviously, I think we've all been out on dates with um, individuals who were drink, drinking often is like a big piece of their life, which I would assume is really hard um, or can be hard to navigate if you're not in the place where you've done the work and you, I would assume, feel a little bit more confident to um, make recommendations for other activities or you feel confident, again, at a certain point, sharing where you're at so that you can navigate towards um, other activities. One burning question I have is, um, you know, we've talked about being in the place, being past the year mark, all of that good stuff to date. What about two people who have a history of addiction, who've gone through the, you know, done their self-work, should they date each other? Or is that problematic? Is it great because they've both done a lot of great work and potentially are in a good place? Or like, what's the viewpoint on that? Actually, what we see is very often two people in recovery end up dating because they are involved in their recovery and that's how they meet people and I think in that place and, and and many patients talk to me about this on a number of different levels whether it's two people with disabilities two people with mental illness they just feel like that other person can get it and can understand them and that they don't have to explain you know what it is that they need and they both can hold each other accountable for their sobriety um, I think that oftentimes that is also another thing where people think, oh, that's a terrible combination they could end up using together. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but if people are active in their recovery and they have been doing the good work, 
they can have a perfectly healthy relationship. They can attend meetings together. Couples therapy is sort of a critical point for anyone in a relationship that is at any point, really, I really like to support like therapy anyways. But if you're both in sobriety and want to prevent relapse, being in couples therapy is a really good preventative um, so that you can work on any dynamics within the two of you so that there isn't any problems within the context of maintaining that sobriety. So I think it's an absolutely okay thing to do um, and can be actually, you know, really good in some ways because people don't feel judged. They don't have that stigma. They know that this person really understands what they've been through. That makes sense. And yeah, I can see that that comfort piece being there and also knowing that someone can identify with your your stories and not feeling like you're on display a little bit with like your past um, challenges and things like that. If somebody isn't exposed to it beforehand, I would feel like I would just guess that it could feel a little bit uncomfortable being able to share some pieces of your past. So I think too, like when I think about someone who's dating someone with an addiction, one of the challenges is what you just brought up, Laura, is the alcohol, right? Such a social thing to do. And now cannabis is becoming more social too. And so for the person who is not a recovering addict, they have to consider that in dating someone that has that addiction. And I, I just want to point that out because if that's something that's important to you to go drinking or to smoke casually, then that may be difficult with a person like that. Um, and it's not that you can't do it um, because the other person is completely responsible for their behavior. You have to be, you have to realize that that can impact them and you want to make sure that that's why that couples therapy piece is so critical that we can have conversations about like, I obviously have a healthy relationship with alcohol in the past. You haven't, how can we navigate this? What's the best way that I can stay connected to you because I love you and I'm going to support your sobriety while still having a glass of wine once in a while. Like how can we make sure that we can work on this so that I'm not triggering to you in that sense? If we can pivot a little bit, since this is uh, an episode also about dating and relationships, um, so commonly people joke about being addicted to love or addicted to a new partner. I feel like that's a really like common turn of phrase. Um, so it's really easy to make light of it, but um, sometimes it can actually be an issue for people. And, you know, what do you feel, Dr. Shamin, are the signs that your relationship may actually be an unhealthy addiction? While it's not, you know, considered a diagnosed condition, there are some psychologists and mental health professionals that actually say it should be, because what we do see is that people end up in relationships for the things that they don't have within themselves. And it's a big thing. And some of the uh, signs and symptoms of that is that we feel like we're nothing unless we're in a relationship. They were constantly striving to be in a relationship. Another thing might be I'm always looking for affirmation or some sort of accolades from somebody else. I really feel like I need that, that constant need to be with someone. I'm very depressed and listless when I'm not with somebody. Um, when in a relationship, I'm all in. I'm intense. I drop everything around me. Um, I don't see my friends that much anymore. I am completely invested in that during that time. And and another big thing is that as soon as that sort of like, I like to call that beginning period of the relationship, like the honeymoon phase, like it's sort of that like nine to 18 months, it just kind of depends on the relationship when it's sort of, you know, got out of that lust, love, you know, oxytocin rush that we get. It's at that point that they lose interest. 
and they look for that next rush. So that's that's where the addiction piece comes in because addiction is a lot about that seeking of that feeling of that high. And so if we find ourselves losing interest in relationships relatively quickly when um, they don't feel that way anymore, that's very much a sign of someone who may be struggling with a love addiction. That is, I am sad to say, probably a lot of people that are out there (laughs) dating right now. It's like, oh, Dr. Shane's talking about me sometimes in the past. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. I, I think the way Laura and I put it in our, you know, not a doctor language, we've called it things like looking for attention and validation, you know, like, and a lot of times it's the three to four month mark where it's like, oh, now we're starting to talk about real things. Real feelings are starting to, to get involved. Maybe we've had our first fight. It's not as you're not getting that rush of dopamine quite as much as you are at the beginning, potentially. Now, I think so many of us have personal experiences with getting drawn into toxic relationships, you know, Heather party of one over here, fueled with big (laughs) highs and lows, or we feel attached to the attention that we're getting from swiping, you know, just getting a match that gives you a little rush, right? Or even food or behavior attachments, which we know those are are not clinical addictions to your point, Dr. Shameen. There's some related feelings with that. Can you kind of talk about the difference between clinical addiction and then addictive behaviors? Like how should, like people say things like, I have a sugar addiction, which is not a real thing. Right, right. Yeah. Well, first of all, what we have to know is that we like have all this language that we use and, to describe ourselves and not a big fan of that. And like people will come in and say I have an addictive personality or, you know, things like that. And that's, that's not a thing. And so people may have given them that that language people have maybe made them feel that way and when you label yourself anytime in a negative light like that's something that needs to be explored like anytime you're labeling yourself in some way we need to kind of look at that now addiction the disease state is sort of a neural you know psychiatric behavioral disease so those three spheres in which we know that your brain is different we know that you will seek gratification at every corner you will do anything to get what you need to get to fulfill that high, that escape, that not feeling. And so that's a disease state where we there are a lot of behaviors associated with it, um, but it's a disease state in which that's what I do. I harm relationships. I, I spend all my money. Um, I, I don't care who I hurt as long as I get that feeling. And so, you know, that's something that we have to look at as the total disease. Now, if we think about behaviors, there are a lot of behaviors that can point towards addiction, but may not always look like addiction. And in the field, sometimes we say pseudo addiction, like looks like it might be, but we don't really know yet. So some of those behaviors might be things like I brought a couple of pills from my aunt Millie. And so we're like, mm, I don't know if that's a good idea, but we don't do it all the time. Um, it might be these intense highs and lows uh, with people. They're hot, they're cold, they're hot, they're cold. We might see some of those behaviors. Um, we might see people that are like more prone to impulse control problems where they sort of are kind of like reaching for things or they like really get excited when they've, you know, bought a whole bunch of clothes or like ate a really good piece of chocolate cake or something. It's something really exciting for them and they kind of get that rush and then they want more of that. We have to look at, if any of those behaviors are starting to impact their life. Once they start to impact their life, they cause decreased functioning, they impact their social relationships or work, then we know we're, we're kind of bridging onto the part of the disease. So there's behaviors and there's there's disease state. 
And it's important to see that, but sometimes there's a gray line there too. So it's not an absolute, we can, you know, sort of definitely morph into something that's more of a true addiction. But of course, you know, seeing a provider, seeing an addiction specialist, psychiatrist, psychologist can help uh, with you diagnosing that. Dr. Shamin, what is your best advice for any of our listeners who are currently grappling with the issue of addiction again in their relationship, whether, you know, the addiction lies with themselves or with their partner? Well, certainly like a couple things, like you must be in therapy, no matter what I talk about, no matter where I am, I tell people individual therapy weekly individual therapy at any point in your life is so critically important. Um, we have kind of a mental health crisis right now. It's harder to access it, but mental health is actually changing too. We have uh, different ways that you can access here virtually through apps. There's even AI um, things that are coming out that are really helpful. And if you're struggling to find a therapist, um, you should look to some of these other avenues, but don't quit looking for a therapist, get yourself on wait lists, um, you know, keep making calls until you get into that. So if you have someone that either you're grappling with it or someone else is grappling with addiction, being in therapy is a critical, critical thing. The second thing is who's around you. We need a lot of good social support. You need to make sure you have non-judgmental, supportive people in your life, whether it's family or friends, it's really important to have those people in your life so that you can share about it, that you can share without someone sort of putting you down or alienating you. You want to have that really open conversation. The third thing is self-care. And I think self-care is becoming such a buzzword, but I'm glad. I'm glad we're talking about it more. I don't think everybody knows what that means for themselves, but I think we have to find what self-care is. You know, like Laura and I, like hitting in the gym is like completely the self-care for me. Gym is my reset button. It's like, I see my patients and I love them, but I, I take on some of their stuff. And then I like to sort of clear that out at the end of the day. You know, it could be a, like a beautiful cup of coffee and quiet at the beginning of the day, but you need to find that thing that gets you back to normal, gets you back to that relaxed state again. We have to have things every single day in our life that make us feel good. We should not go a whole day without ever having some self-care in the day. There should be something every single day. This has been such a powerful and just really helpful um, conversation, Dr. Shamin. Um, I think a lot of the what you've shared is really helpful for any of our listeners, whether it's, you know, addiction comes into play in a romantic relationship with a family member, with a friend. I think you've outlined a lot of really great ways to, I think what I heard so much of is like coming at people with support and being able to be a supportive friend, family member, whatever that is um, toward um, anybody who is grappling with addiction challenges. And then for yourself, if that's your story, um, therapy, which Heather and I, we are so pro therapy all the time. And it is so critical and so important to have that support system for yourself. Um, thank you so much to all of our listeners who have joined us. Thank you, Dr. Shamin, for taking the time with us today. And just a reminder that we have so many great conversations still ahead of us this season. So make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss a beat. Thank you, everyone. Still thirsty? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Thirsty the Podcast. Share this show with your community. Rate, review, and follow us wherever you get your podcasts.